Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. The Word of God for our study this Easter day is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57. It's printed in your bulletin and already read. Dear friends in Christ, It can be cute when a five-year-old on her first soccer team, or even an 11-year-old on his peewee football team does it. But what about a grown man in the NFL? It was a Sunday afternoon in 1964 in San Francisco, and Jim Marshall, a legendary defensive end with the Minnesota Vikings, was headed for glory. In the fourth quarter, the 49ers running back, Billy Kilmer, had just taken a pass when he was hit and lost the ball. Marshall saw opportunity on the ground. He ran in and scooped up the fumble and started running for the end zone. A defensive touchdown would put the game away and seal victory for the Vikings. And he ran 66 yards down the field with his teammates following along on the sidelines, shouting at him the whole way, and others behind him down the field calling out his name, tasting the victory already. When he got there, Marshall tossed the ball triumphantly off the field. But the elation was short-lived because those teammates shouting as he ran were saying, you're going the wrong way. The only congratulations he got was from the San Francisco player that had followed him down the field. Jim Marshall's illustrious career became forever connected with that one time that he got turned around and thought he was winning when in fact he was losing. It can be funny. When something similar happens with a, a cartoon character, like when Wiley e. Coyote thinks that he is finally outsmarted and caught the roadrunner, only to have victory explode in his face. And we can get a certain vicarious satisfaction or thrill through, through TV or cinema when we see the tables turned on a preening bad guy. The other day I watched the, the final scene of a movie that I've caught bits and pieces of over the years. In it, the good guy dying after being shot from behind, gives the villain, who has come up to gloat, a congratulatory gift. And the bad guy is too busy gloating over his win to realize at first what it is. The pin from a grenade. The realization hits him only a split second before the explosion, when his win turns into a total loss. You've probably seen the same kind of scene in dozens of other films or shows. But we see this happening in history, too, which means that it deals with real life and death situations of real people. We have one example in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites have begun their conquest of Canaan. The Lord has given them a miraculous victory over the city of Jericho, and they expected a similar result when they attacked the next city, Ai. But the Israelites were instead routed by the men of Ai because God was not with them. After Joshua and the people had dealt with the sin causing that problem, they went back to attack Ai again. And in the morning, when the battle began, it looked like history was just repeating itself. The Israelite forces just melted away in front of the Canaanites, and the king of Ai 
excited to claim his victory and all the glory that went with it, sent all his soldiers chasing after Joshua's men. And when the chase had taken them far enough from the the city gates, Joshua gave his signal. And the 5,000 men he had left in ambush behind the city entered Ai through its open gates, captured it, and set it on fire. And then, when the soldiers of Ai saw the smoke, their victory turned to ashes in their mouths. Not only had they lost the city, they were now caught between Joshua's army, which had turned to fight, and his men from the ambush coming to finish the battle. Those who had looked like the winners that day turned out to be the losers. And those who had looked like the losers were the victors. Military history is, is full of similar stories of cocky commanders fatally overextending their forces and also of uncertain commanders withdrawing them just when victory could have been sealed. And when you consider all these kinds of examples of winning turning to losing, well, you might like to say, well, I'm glad that would never be me. Alternatively, you might say, wow, that sounds a lot like my life. And the truth is that no matter how good anyone's life might appear, and no matter who might seem to be winning when we look at them, by nature, we are all marshals, wily coyotes, and AI Canaanites. Rich and poor, weak and powerful, young and old, all have the same problem. We all are mortal. Exercise, diet, and medicine might be able to extend your life or make it better until it ends, but it still ends. And going out on top isn't really a win, because going out means death has triumphed. So yes, by nature, we are all losers in the contest that is most important. And that is not pessimism or a poor self-image. It's reality. It has been that way from the beginning, or at least since the Garden of Eden. God made clear to our first parents what the cost of choosing their own way over His would be. And He didn't lie. They died. And everyone dies because of sin. Adam's sin and our own sin. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans reminds us that the wages of sin is death. And God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel to make clear that the soul who sins will die. No one escapes. No one is exempted. So you may be at the pinnacle of your profession or have acquired the best car, the best house, and the biggest bank balance. You may have millions of followers on Twitter or thousands of likes on Facebook. Your body might be tuned to perfection with not an ounce of fat out of place. Or you might be the envy of everyone with the perfect spouse, perfect kids, and perfect family. It looks like you're winning. 
You're ready to take that victory lap. You think everyone's cheering you on. But if you're just going your own way, you're going the wrong way, which makes you not a winner. Because when you stand apart from God, which we all do by nature, death takes you, and hell is your reward. That is the price of your sin and my sin. We are damned for our disobedience, and it is not God who is the bad guy. He created us, gave us a perfect world, lovingly laid out for us a plan for everything good in our lives, wants only to bless us, and yet from the womb we selfishly and foolishly choose our own will over His despite its cost. There are so many ways that we serve self instead of God. The senior citizen decides that being old gives him permission to be cranky and treat others rudely. The middle-aged executive cuts ethical and legal corners to pad his resume, rationalizing that he can be honest when he retires. The teenager determines that listening to her parents is for little kids. She's going to do what she thinks is right since she knows better. And the little kid just knows that she wants the toy her brother has just because he has it and takes it. Every day we lie and deceive. We hurt or insult someone. We take the Lord's name in vain. We, we break laws and promises. We, we hate and cheat and steal. And in countless ways, we fail to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The irony is that at the time we are doing these things, we feel like winners. Woohoo! I did it my way! But the feeling doesn't last. Because we're actually losers. Because each and every sin earns us death and hell. The devil wins. The grave gets the victory. We do not. So it's no wonder that even the richest and most successful among us often feel despair. And the healthiest and most fit still fear death. No wonder that the unexpected demise of some celebrity sometimes seems to, to shake society to its core because the evidence that we all lose our struggle with mortality suddenly cannot be ignored. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not or even if you accept the whole idea of sin or not. In the end, any victory you may think you have won in this life explodes in your face, which makes the life of Jesus Quite a stark and striking contrast. Because his life was not one of success or triumph. To all appearances, he was one of society's losers. Born in poverty, without a home to call his own. Needing, while still an infant, to escape to a foreign land because the king wanted him dead. Raised in a, a small village in, in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. Trained as a humble craftsman, no wealth, no glory, and nothing particularly attractive about his appearance. When he began his ministry, 
He wasn't invited to, to conferences or colleges to hobnob with the elite, and there were no honorary doctorates by the time he was done. Despite amazing miracles and powerful preaching, many disciples left him once his message got serious. And the crowds were mostly only interested in the novelty of him and free bread. The high point of his career was a parade with palm branches and hosannas on his last trip to Jerusalem, hailing him as a king. But within mere days, all that fell away. He was betrayed by a friend and taken by his enemies. His disciples ran away and crucify him was the only shout heard again from the crowd. He was convicted of a crime he did not commit by a court that did not care and sent to his death by a governor without courage. It's not hard to imagine the rabble around Golgotha on Good Friday crying out as as they saw him hanging on a cross between two common criminals in in life-draining agony. Loser! Loser! And then, of course, he lost. He lost the struggle with mortality just like any of us. He died. And then a few days later, he was taking his victory lap through hell and then here on earth. Because what looked like losing was actually Christ winning. And winning big, winning everything. Because his suffering and death on that cross was not the crowning catastrophe of the life of a humiliated failure, but was the willing sacrifice of the Son of God. Jesus was no mere man and no victim of events beyond his control. He was God and man in one saving person. And as such, he was the only one who could do for sinners what needed to be done. As a man, he was able to suffer and to die. And as the Son of God, his suffering and death would be sufficient. They would be sufficient to satisfy the demands of justice, enough to answer the wrath of God against sin. That was Christ's purpose. He had not come or worked or preached for earthly success, but for heavenly rescue. Jesus looked like a loser because he had taken upon himself as his own burden all the guilt and all the sin of all sinners, and he made it his own. The punishment that he took was deserved, not by him, but by us. But he took it in our place. Not out of any kind of obligation, not because we merited it in any way, but simply because he loved us. That is why he came. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. He didn't want any of us to perish in hell because of our sins, but he wanted us all to be saved and to join him in heaven. So Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He took away our sin and gave us perfect holiness, his own, since as sinners we could never earn it for ourselves. Now, we could call Christ a winner already when he died on the cross because his work was finished. 
He took away our sin and so delivered us from damnation and the devil who uses our sin against us. But it is what we celebrate today that makes his victory most clear and joyful. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, which meant that the last enemy had been defeated and that there was nothing left for Jesus but the win. He lives and rules eternally. And that makes us victors too. Because what he won, he won for us. Jesus rose from the dead and tells those who believe in him that they will live as he lives. Death has no victory anymore. It does not even sting anymore. Because no matter how painful or sorrowful it may be, no matter how it might come to us or the one that we love, we know it is not permanent. We wake up in heaven with our Savior and with all the saints and angels who gather around His throne. Sin does not control us any longer because Christ canceled it out for us on the cross. The grave does not terrorize us any longer because Jesus emptied it of fear. Satan lost his grip on us because the Son of God took his tools away. Easter makes us victors. Jesus won us everything we need. So what now do we do with that? You know, there are different ways to live with victory. Some might, to use an ancient phrase, rest on their laurels. To use the peace achieved by the victory as a reason to be, well, lazy and unconcerned. But these laurels, this crown of victory, is not ours to rest on. Jesus is the one who won the victory, not us. Nor would it be wise in any way to, to sit when we should be standing or lie down when we should be running. The life that we Christians are called to is, is one of service and growth. And, and both of those require action and forward motion. We are not saved by our works, but because we are saved, we work. Some other victors might go another direction. Pride. Sure, what Jesus has done for us and given us sets us apart from everyone else. But it does not set us above them. Arrogantly asserting special rights as Christians or, or rubbing unbelievers' faces in our supposed superiority is not only offensive, but completely contrary to the Spirit of Christ and the Gospel. We are saved sinners, but sinners still. All the credit for being better goes to Jesus. And if being up means keeping others down, well, we're doing something wrong. Or how about the opposite approach? Excessive humility. Maybe, may, maybe we should acknowledge Christ's win for us, but just continue living our lives as losers? But if instead of victors, we play the victim, oh, then we have an excuse for a lack of faith. We, we can complain when we should be praying. We can insist on being served instead of serving. But that is not who we are. That is not what God wants. 
That is not how Christ's victors live. You see, He has given us the victory over sin, death, and Satan so that we can live without fear and with absolute confidence of our place in paradise. He has won us forgiveness so that we can be done with sin and then share that forgiveness with others. He defeated our enemies so that we can be comforted when life's harsh realities set us back. Grief and illness and pain and catastrophe are put in glorious perspective when we can see beyond them to eternal life and when we remember what Jesus so lovingly endured in order to give that to us. As victors, we are never looking for people to lord it over, but for fellow sinners to share and celebrate that victory with. We have life in place of death. We have truth instead of falsehood and deceit. We have hope in place of despair. We have perfection in place of imperfection. We have love in place of hate and pride and competition and indifference. And we have joy. Joy in place of fear, in place of grief, in place of dread, in place of sorrow. Which means that most of all, we respond to the Easter good news of our victory through Christ with thanks and praise to God. That's why we sing our loud alleluias and shout, He is risen indeed, so joyfully. What He has done for us can never be repaid, but will always be celebrated. He has changed us. We are no longer the fleshly losers we used to be, just as we are no longer the lost sinners we used to be. When the last trumpet sounds, these perishable bodies will put on imperishability, and these mortal bodies will put on immortality. We will live forever in perfection, in bliss, in paradise with our loving Lord. So death has no sting, and the grave has no victory. Instead, the triumph is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are victors. Alleluia. Amen. Please rise. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, equip you with every good thing to do His will, as He works in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.